This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. We're still in big picture thinking mode today as Professor Christopher Wright explores how we might get system change as the reckless damage of capitalism becomes more visible to all of us. Then we will hear about a great win for people power with Marie Leroy from Move Beyond Coal. They've swarmed for months around National Australia Bank branches all over the country and they're celebrating that bank's refusal of a $1 billion loan to Whitehaven Coal. They need you for the next push, which will be to turn on Tanya Plibersek, our Environment Minister, and the federal government to stop licensing any new coal and gas projects. And then we'll finish with Dorothy Barbeck, who's from the Bob Brown Foundation, who's calling us to a national push to stop native forest logging and it's on Saturday the 12th of August in every state capital. Christopher Wright is one of the authors of the new book, Organising Responses to Climate Change. He's a professor at Sydney University and a key researcher at the Sydney Environment Institute. That looks like a dry book, but really it's about politics, changing the fossil fuel hegemony, and it's about resistance. So welcome, Christopher. This is episode three in a series on system change, not climate change. And I want to put some flesh on the bones of that slogan. We've heard socialist perspectives tonight, but I think you will be more in the radical centre. And from your knowledge of transnational companies, what ideas are on the table? I think they can make a profit out of green energy and even out of disaster capitalism, are they at all threatened by climate change? Well, thanks, Vivian, and pleasure to chat to you. Um, yeah, so the, the the business corporate response to climate and contribution to climate change is complex and diverse and variable, and we've tried to capture that in the book. I mean, it, it spans a spectrum from at one end, I guess, the, the pretty well-documented cases of companies like ExxonMobil uh, and many of the, the the major fossil fuel companies and state-owned enterprises, which have engaged for decades in 
sort of organised climate denial and the capture of politics in the US and Australia and elsewhere around this idea that fossil fuel extraction use can continue forever. Right through to the other end of the spectrum, I guess, where you have um, businesses that are that get or senior managers that get the, the urgency of the climate crisis and see possibilities for a sort of a win-win in terms of um, moving towards radical decarbonisation of energy or transport in their industry or whatever their business model is. Um, you know, companies like Atlassian in Australia um, with Mike Cannon-Brooks and the sort of focus he's pushing very much on sort of massive renewable energy projects. Um, so there is a spectrum of corporate response from one end to the other. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned him because I was going to say many people are hoping that billionaires like Mark Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forrest will sort of deliver us from climate chaos. And the media loves the story of Australia being a renewable energy superpower and an exporting energy. And I, I like it too. I mean, it's grandiose. I read all that stuff and I think, my, my, that's brave. But also there's the critical minerals needed for the transition and, you know, the sense that all of this could happen without any more regulation than the colonising way we've already approached the fossil fuel era. So should government allow business like that to take the driver's seat? Well, no, short answer. I mean, we're in a, we're in a devilish position now where we've had 40 or 50 years of, of neoliberal ideology driving public policy and driving the role of government and society and basically a retreat of the state from the regulation of economic activity. Uh, and it's been left to, uh, th this agenda has basically put forward the idea that corporations are the best sort of actors to ensure the, the best distribution of, of goods and services in society. And that's that's really a, um, a very partisan and failed ideology, but it's had a huge impact. And so, as I said, we're in this devilish position where political parties uh, don't want to act on critical issues. They're very poll-driven and very short-term focused, and they're quite happy to hand over these, these big problems um, to, to big corporations, and corporations and industry associations can see ways to make money out of that. Uh, so I, I get back to your question. No, we shouldn't be leaving uh, the response to climate change to billionaires, but um, there are rare examples like Cannon Brooks at Atlassian, and I, I think he is very rare. Uh, I'm not sure in my own mind where Twiggy Forest and Green Hydrogen sort of fits. He's certainly said some very, um, on face value, good things about the need to get away from fossil energy and the need to embrace sort of renewable energy and, and the, the, the role of critical minerals in that. There are negative sides to that transition, of course, in terms of extractivism and local environmental destruction. Um, but I think one of the critical issues we face is the need to radically decarbonise energy and transport. They're the two big buckets of carbon emissions. Um, and if we can harness uh, rich industrialists to do that, that's good, but we shouldn't be let, letting them in the driver's seat to, to sort of um, point the direction of change. Mm. Uh, you know, the example of the billionaire space race, for instance, with Musk and um, mm. uh, Branson and... Uh, uh, Bezos, you know, and this sort of fanciful idea they're going to retreat to space and uh, we're going to move human civilization to space. I mean, it's, it's a fantasy and it's madness and it's exactly the wrong thing. But if yeah. we let billionaires sort of drive the agenda, we could end up with quite mad types of responses as well. Yeah, but I'm thinking of these young people dangling over the four ports that we've featured in this program and they're young and they've got allies who are 
in the retirement generation, but they say, I haven't got a future. And and all of this distraction with the uh, space race and all of that, I, I just can't, I don't have time for it. And we saw how the media focused, for example, on the Titanic submarine story. And meanwhile, 800 or more people died in the Mediterranean, refugees, not, not, nothing like the media attention. So we're dealing with corporate media as well that highlights exciting and stuff like this. And it's also nihilistic, seems to me, the space stories, nihilistic, these people who don't seem to care. And that's why I wonder, the people at the top, they can't all be brutish people. I don't think any of them, most of them aren't brutish people, but what is happening is really brutish, isn't it, now in this yeah, well, economy? the issue... The issue is a, it's a system problem, um, as you've probably covered yeah. in your previous interviews. Um, we live in this global system of, of uh, global capitalism, corporate capitalism, as a sort of particular variant of that, where the largest and most powerful organisations in the world are large corporations and state-owned enterprises. And, and many of those are uh, critically embedded within the fossil fuel economy. I mean, basically, the world still gets more than 80% of its energy from fossil fuels, and that hasn't changed since the early 70s, a slight decrease, but still more than 80% comes from coal, oil and gas. So, you know, in, in terms of the activists and the sort of actions they're taking, in a sense, it's, it's, it's fallen to social movements and activism to try and break through this collective magical um, vision that we can continue doing what we're doing and it'll have no implications, as we can see in the, the media coverage just this Last month, I guess, in the Northern Hemisphere, some of these extreme weather events, heat waves and massive floods. Um, climate change is happening now, and it's happening almost ahead of the predictions of climate scientists in terms of its extreme uh, impacts. And it's going to get worse. So uh, how do you cut through the, the media um, failure to engage with this issue? How do you cut through the sort of uh, the bread and circuses sort of fascination with trivia? Well, in a sense, I think those those climate movements, those climate activists are trying to do that. And, um, you know, full kudos to them because the political parties aren't engaging with this issue. Uh, and it's very, very hard to get anybody to take this issue with the urgency it requires. So uh, more of that sort of activism, although it's disruptive and possibly annoys people, at least gets people focused on, on the issue itself. And I think, to be honest, this coming... Uh, summer, Southern Hemisphere summer, we're going to face with an El Nino event. We're probably going to see very extreme weather events in Australia as well. I know. And are we even preparing ahead with the water? I mean, I remember people from Sydney taking pallets of water out to the Menindian, you know, western, uh, smaller cities out, out there, Rewarana and all of that, but they, they didn't have potable water. And uh, are we even planning for all they said? All, all we need is water tanks. This is very low tech, not space rockets. We yeah. need water tanks. Are we even as a society preparing for that? And again, that's that's the failure of public policy, not just around the mitigation side. And in our book, we sort of split the book into three parts: mitigation, adaptation, and suffering, and the politics mm -hmm. of each of those. But in terms of mitigation, I've sort of mentioned there is this sort of failure to engage with radically reducing carbon emissions and, and fossil energy. But as you're saying, in terms of preparing for impacts um, in anticipation of them, that's really the climate adaptation space. And again, governments, uh, particularly federal uh, and to a lesser extent state and, and really local governments are the ones who are at the coalface on this, are having to respond to climate impacts post hoc. You know, the aftermath of the Lismore floods, the aftermath of the Black Summer fires on the south coast of New South Wales. 
And there are still people in those communities, you know, have been left propertyless with with no income. Uh, and there's a government again failing to sort of engage with this issue. So it's it's not a not a particularly uplifting um, story at the moment in the sense that governments have failed on climate and they've been captured by vested interests. Uh, and corporations really are looking in in general sense uh, at ways to profit from the disaster that's unfolding. Uh, so it's very difficult for civil society to sort of respond in that space. But I think there are indications that groups like um, School Climate Strikes, Fridays for Future, um, Blockade Australia, Just Stop Oil, all of these sort of examples are trying to shift the public debate to these, these urgent issues. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Thank you. You're listening to the Climate Action Show and Professor Christopher Wright from Sydney University. Well, in your book, you had um, three little sub-chapters, uh, decarbonisation, degrowth, and democracy. And I'd like to cover those. In decarbonisation, the idea seemed to me, when we first sort of really, really started being interested in climate change, I thought it was simple. Yes, manage the transition from fossil energy to wind and solar, stop deforestation, you know, just organise it, manage it globally. But you describe the predatory delay of those businesses which will lose out. And they are called, well, I've had guests on the program calling them climate criminals. You know, people from Bangladesh, people from the Pacific, they say, you are climate criminals exporting coal and gas still. And I want to know what is your best model for a system change that will disarm those particular businesses? Yeah. So as you said, there's sort of those three Ds that we emphasize in terms of responses, decarbonization being the first of those. And in each of those, as the book's title suggests, it's ultimately a political process. And that's that's the problem with climate change. The problem isn't necessarily technological or scientific. It's a political problem. Uh, and the problem is our politics has been captured by very powerful vested interests, the fossil fuel sector in particular, but industrial capitalism more generally. Uh, and they don't want to see any change. They certainly don't want to see decarbonisation, which threatens their business model. And you can see that particularly, we talk about this a little bit in the book, in the way that the big oil companies, for instance, came out um, with pledges to net zero by mid-century. Um, if you've been reading the news, you'll note that many of them have backtracked on that, particularly in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion and the massive profits they're now making um, from selling fossil energy. Um, so, yeah, how do you get decarbonisation to happen? As you say, technologically, it's probably got even simpler in the sense that we now have um, battery storage as the sort of the answer to the intermittency of, of, of renewable energy. And you can look at all of the massive investment uh, that's happening around um, lithium-ion batteries and other new types of batteries for, for storage. So that's great. But again, the politics has been captured. So we, as we've seen in Australia over the last decade or more, Conservative governments doing everything they can to impede the transition to renewable energy um, and to talk up the possibilities of continuing with, with coal-fired power, for instance. Uh, so it's the politics that's the problem. And how do you how do you win that politics around decarbonisation? 
Um, well, you have to try and move the political levers. And again, activism is part of that. Uh, but also um, having that sort of debate at the political level, the, the rise of the Teals, for instance, in the last federal election was, was, a, was a, I think, a, a, a good move. Unfortunately, they didn't get a balance of power. The Labor Party got a majority government. But if they'd had the balance of power, I think that would have even pushed the levers even faster towards the renewable reinvention that we need. Um, but yeah, it's ultimately a political problem and the pol politics is captured and that's why it is so tough. Well, a captured state sort of sounds to me like a fortress, you know, it's captured. You have to infiltrate, you have to sabotage it, you have to blow it up and do something to it. And one of the ideas on the table was the Green New Deal. And in reading about that, I realised some people were saying, well, with the Green New Deal, with collective ownership of the main you know, like the energy companies, the railways, the banks, mm. so that sort of nationalisation as we had after World War II. Um, with that collective ownership, you could rapidly um, sell off the fossil fuel future exploration licences and all the all the things that they're banking on North, and so on. And at the same time, you would be... Um, knocking out that class of people, those people who have had political power as well as just company power, they've had this political power, you'd be sort of, you'd be retiring them, getting them off the scene. And I thought, and it was all done with quantitative easing, which I had to look up what that really means. But, you know, do you like the idea of that, of collective ownership, as in a wartime measure, we're going to own this collectively and um, and manage the dissent away from it because that's what I thought was going to happen you know 10 years ago but it, it it's not even really yeah, and, about now and I guess the 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 answer to the question of why that didn't happen is you come back to the power of the neoliberal ideology that drives I know, I know. the way in which we see the role of government and society and know. you know um if you looked at the Green New Deal um or even the the derivation that eventually happened in the US under Biden the Inflation Reduction Act uh, essentially what was happening there was lots of incentives to companies to do the movement towards renewable energy, but very few sticks. And what we really need essentially is for government to take um, a sort of a leadership role here and regulate. I mean, this is the problem with neoliberal ideology. You can't have the state regulating anything. You must leave it to so-called free markets, which is a, a big euphemism. Um, but if you want the radical decarbonisation, you have to not just attack the demand side and trying to convince consumers to buy renewable energy, et cetera. You've got to hit, hit the supply side. And there, if you look at the history of sort of climate um, responses, uh, commitments to emissions reduction, it's all on the demand side, not on the supply side. There's no attempt to try and intervene through industry policy to drive a shift away from fossil energy towards renewable energy. Uh, and why hasn't that happened? Because the ruling philosophy is governments shouldn't regulate markets. Um, so yeah, I think nationalisation of, of key infrastructure like energy and water um, and these sort of sectors is something we should be doing, but I can't see it happening given the power of the prevailing sort of ideology of how we run economies these days. I think it would happen if we if we imagined it, if we talked to it. As I gave the example, the Titanic submarine got all the news, the, the refugees didn't. You could flip that by day-to-day, minute-by-minute reporting on the refugees, and I reckon the compassion would flow. But um, I, I sort of feel we, we were not up to doing that and we can't think of it because we don't have these imaginative futures. These young people saying, I have no future. They can't see it, and I can't see it either.
I think the you're right in the sense you have to create an appealing vision of of a future society that's an alternative and is attractive. And that can be done, but as you're saying, the problem is the institutions that control how those imaginaries are diffused and communicated at a sort of a big public level are, are controlled, really. I mean, if you look at media in Australia, it's a great example. It's highly concentrated. It's highly conservative. I think Murdoch controls, what, 80% of the, the press. Um, we don't really have an independent media in Australia anymore. Um, certainly look at the role of conservative governments and try to nobble the ABC. Um, it's very hard to get that message out there. And so it falls again to the poor old activists who are employing sort of social media strategies to try and get this challenging counter-hegemony. That's what yeah. it essentially is, a, a message which challenges the dominant view out there to the public. But it, it's an uphill battle because right. missing in all of this is, is power. That power is very much highly concentrated in groups that want to maintain the system as it is. That's the problem we're trying to change the system. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Something that's always marked me is I've, I've seen this, I've known this for years. It was a photo. It was in 1942, and there was a line all around the block and down the street in London. Wait, people were waiting for a copy of the beverage report, and that beverage report was the blueprint for the welfare state that they then had. But in 1942, you can imagine bombs dropping. No one knew what was going to happen. The, how would you be hungry for a report about what is? But they were, and that hunger is what I think is latent now. If only the media flipped the other way or the, you know, the, the academies, the universities, the teachers, all the people who are talking, the gatekeepers of how people are thinking, the writers would be starting to talk like the beverage report. This can be different. It doesn't have to be this way. Capitalism isn't a force of nature. It's created by human beings. It doesn't have to be this way. And I sort of feel the, the energy and the hunger is there. A lot of people are quite desperate, but they're desperate with low-level things, you know, just the daily things. But this bigger picture could, you know, has to be written. Someone has to write that book, you know, the beverage report for the future. And I was thinking that, you know, it's not um, a welfare, that was for the welfare state, but the welfare we want now is for the biosphere. You know, it's mm. the welfare of the whole biosphere. And you talked a little bit about degrowth, and I wondered if, mm. you know, the book of degrowth, what would that, what vision, could you paint that picture? Tell us that narrative. Well, there's there's a lot of work happening now around this concept. People like Jason Hickel and others overseas been writing about this, uh, and it seems to be catching on. I, I gather there was a, a UN conference a gathering in Europe on this, and the term degrowth is is immediately subject to ridicule from conventional economists who who see no alternative to compound economic growth ad infinitum. But it's not yeah. as simple as the term implies because it's suggesting 
um, selective degrowth of sectors of economy which are harmful and doing harm to the ecosystem and to social equality, and selective sort of uh, growth of, of sectors of the economy which are providing social and environmental benefits. So it's not a sort of a blanket hard crash recession sort of model of mm. what we do with the economy. Uh, and it speaks to this issue that you spoke about, the idea of an alternative sort of vision of politics, economics and society. Um, the degrowth sort of idea is charting out what that future society could sort of look like. So it might involve things like reductions in working hours, greater equality of income, uh, changes to private ownership, a whole range of sort of social um, conventions that would respond to these, these pressures. But again, getting back to your earlier point, it's all very well to create that book, vision, whatever it is, um, of the future. The problem is cutting through the dominance of the prevailing image, which is continually, we're continually bombarded by in terms of media, mm. um, advertising, marketing, um, government um, agendas, policies. Yeah, we, we use the term hegemony in the book a fair bit, which comes from the Italian... Um, intellectual and revolutionary Antonio Gramsci in 1920s Italy. Uh, and he was really pondering this question, why don't people rise up and rebel against the rise of fascism? And his, his response was, well, there is this overarching ideology, this hegemony, which is so embedded in our thinking, it's, it's common sense. We don't even question or even aware of its existence. It's, to use the term, the water we sort of swim in. We're not even conscious of it. And that's, in a sense, the problem we face with climate change, that to challenge the system, you have to be aware of the system. And I, I think for many people, it's very hard to even be conscious of that system and its existence. Yeah. Well, thank you for participating in this, because this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to look at the system. You know, the last question is about democracy, and everyone's worried about that now. Um, the key fault line, you say, is democracy, if people are to demand collective ownership and a move away from profit-making as the goal of all our efforts, they need to be stronger and not co-opted by mantras of jobs and growth. Remember Malcolm Turnbull, jobs and growth, that was... Oh, yeah, yeah, I think Scott Morrison used that as well, actually. <laughs> That's right, it's very catchy. <laughs> the daring, and I think the daring young people who take direct action, stopping the ports and stopping the logging, they're not just young, there's older people up those trees in the timeline too. They say there's no future and it's stark and they have plenty of allies. But capitalism was invented by people so it can be disinvented or dismantled. Just talk about democracy, how to strengthen that. I, I, yeah. I, I like the citizens' assembly idea, but that, a lot of people shoot that down. What do you think? How to expand the democracy and strengthen it? Yeah, because the reality is we claim we live in a democracy, but it's a very partial and um, denuded sort of concept or practice of that of that concept in the sense we turn up every three years and, and vote for a political party or political candidate, and that's about it. But democracy in a more thorough sense is about active participation in all of the decisions which affect our lives. And so that sort of concept, deliberative democracy, where you have um, communities actively involved in making decisions about um, uh, environmental issues, social issues, those sorts of things, all the way down, cascading down through society, I think, is something that, that needs to be um, uh, further developed. And going back to the idea of sort of collective ownership of, of key commons resources, um, that's a sort of a key part of that. So 
having democratic uh, participation in how our energy is produced and consumed is an obvious place to go. And so we can look at sort of um, collective ownership of, of renewable energy um, processes. Uh, there's, there's a whole range of ways in which we need to move away from this, this vision that um, decisions are made on high by basically corporate and political elites. And the only way we can participate is as consumers. That's the that's the sort of the the capitalist framing. Your only role as a citizen is as a consumer, which is highly undemocratic. Um, but it's it's quite a sort of pervasive argument because it's sort of this idea that we we vote with our dollars by buying the products, um, whether they're political products or, or real consumer products. We need to basically enlarge in that concept of democracy a whole range of other um, activities. Examples. I know you admired in Scotland. They got their emissions down, or their yeah. So they they looked at um, a process of um, communities basically collectively owning uh, energy production and making decisions, mostly renewable energy um, production, making decisions about how that energy is produced and consumed. Um, and there's there's research has been published that looks at not only how that was good for those communities in terms of democratic participation, but also in terms of reducing their emissions. They weren't reliant on centralised coal-fired or nuclear-fired um, energy anymore. They were producing their own energy and making decisions about it. And there's similar examples in the north of Germany, in Schleswig-Holstein, with wind energy production and farmers as communities basically collectively owning those production sites. Mm. So... Still a lot of work on the table. Well, you're a professor with a lot of students, I imagine, who you're forming into the next generation of thinkers on this. Um, thank you for talking to us today. And I hope, you know, some of them might eventually like to collaborate with this because, as you say, the media is, you know, captured. But everything seems to be captured. So the people who can be free should do as much as they can. So I'm always looking for students or people who'd like to um, work with me on producing radio. No, um, happy to happy to circulate that uh, suggestion <laughs> and see see what you find. Yeah. So we've been talking to Professor Christopher Wright from the University of Sydney, and his new book is "Organising Responses to Climate Change." Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Vivian. Pleasure to speak to you.
We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our land is out. And now for a victory. Move Beyond Coal announces that its relentless campaign to get the National Australia Bank to refuse a $1 billion loan for our biggest coal-only exporter, Whitehaven, is a triumph for people power. And I have Marie Leroy here to tell us about it. She is a business owner and a former NAB customer. So welcome, Marie. Tell us how it happened. Yes, so thanks, Vivian. So what actually happened was it's been a long, long haul, um, but it's been about getting community together and getting committed people to actually stand up and getting enough people and enough events to stand up and say to these banks that it's well past time. We can no longer allow you to divest from our children's future and you must divest from these, you know, we must have you stop funding these fossil fuel companies. I mean, the thing about Whitehaven is it's a coal-only operation and, you know, you've got these banks who were giving them a facility of $1 billion and it's completely unacceptable. And we know it's unacceptable. And the banks, despite having their, uh, their climate policies, uh, they're really not worth the paper they're written on. You know, they they do a whole lot of, um, you know, they mess their words around. They say things like, oh, well, you know, we're no longer going to fund new fossil fuel projects. So instead what they do is they fund the company. They provide a facility and then the company does what they will with it. And so the game's up and, uh, you know, people are starting to work that out. And so the really where we need to be, is is for people who are feeling disempowered, of which there are very, very many right now, um, especially with Europe burning and, you know, I guess we're next, um, it's time to stand up. You know, if you're feeling, you know, for your listeners who might be worried about their kids' future or their grandkids' future or whatever it might be, th there is something you can do. And it's very empowering to be able to actually stand up to these large organisations who think that business as usual is okay, is to say to them, actually, business as usual has to stop. It should have stopped five, ten years ago, but it has to stop now and I'm going to be part of it. Yeah. Well, I went to the first Move Beyond Coal meeting in Sydney. It was in a town hall and there were hundreds of people there and they were very well organised. They got people into little local groups and I went along with my dog to the local NAB branch and we stood outside the NAB branch. We tried to yep. interact with the staff. They, and But that, that's I 
tuned in and tuned out of it because I'm doing radio, but the Move Beyond Coal just seemed to grow. And every time I went, there were a bigger, it was a bigger group, but it was also a more diverse group. Every time I thought, wow, there's a lot of people being brought in from all points of the compass to this. Like you're a business owner. There were other people who were knitting nanas, you know, retired people. Yeah. There were religious people. There's one sitting at the NAB headquarters in Sydney of religious people just chanting very quietly, very dignified sort of ceremony. And the it really caught people unawares. The security were just looking at us flummoxed and uh, people were going up to work and coming back. So I think Move Beyond Coal has been quite creative in getting a great diversity of people. Tell us how you got involved. You're in the, in the business sector. Right. Yeah, well, I've been involved for quite a long time. Um, I actually started off uh, with a group called Galilee Blockade and um, we were formed when there was this discussion, a talk about Adani, um, you know, starting on with his project in the Galilee Basin. And so we were a bit, and that was actually the start of the former group of Move Beyond Coal, which was the Stop Adani campaign. So we were kind of concurrent. We did different things. Stop Adani has always been nonviolent direct action, but more in community involvement, more rallies, protests, that sort of thing, whereas Galilee Blockade was a bit um, a bit more bold, I suppose. We were going after specific targets that were working with Adani and having getting them to pull out of the contract and that itself, as in the contract, to do the work on the mine with Adani and building it. And that was a very successful campaign. Unfortunately, obviously, Adani went ahead, but much smaller we you know together both Stopadani and Galilee Blockade were able to delay the building of the mine we you know stopped them getting a one billion dollar uh, NAFE loan which was something that was on the table at the time um, you know so it was a it it was a whole lot of um, groups acting together um, but the thing about the Stopadani campaign which has morphed into Beyond Coal Move Beyond Coal is that anyone can join you know it's not it's non-confrontational you just can go to there and to the bank and you can in this case and just be there and make your feelings known you're not breaking the law you're just being a citizen saying to the banks stop wrecking my kids future yeah and so and it's it's the power of the people it's it's the the more people you can have, and because it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you have a cane, if you're, if you're disabled, it doesn't really matter who you are. If you can get there, then that's actually all you need to be able to do. Yeah. Well, listeners will remember the name Moores Creek and the huge yes. battle up there in northern New South Wales. You know, we covered it and <clears throat> and I think everyone will remember the Wallabies captain, David Pocock locked on to yep. machinery and Rick Laird, one of the owners up there, and many people joined that. There was a huge amount of creativity in that people camping there uh, to stop Whitehaven Coal. Well, mm. we lost that battle and Whitehaven Coal still has the same CEO. I saw him quoted yesterday, Paul Flynn, and he's just yep. lost NAB's rotating loan of $1 billion, so little by little yep. creeping up on him. David Pocock is now a senator and has a bit of yeah. political power. And Tanya Plibersek is our new environment minister, but she's still approving coal mines. So what is Beyond Coal planning next? 
move beyond coal? What are they? What are they? Can you plimpersick? So, well, they're going to still stick with Whitehaven because there are still plans for them to expand. Um, and these are things that Tanya Plibersek has to approve. Now, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Tanya, and I think what we're going to see is Move Beyond Coal is going to start focusing on trying to get her to understand what her role is, which as a government minister is to protect the people. That's what the government's role is, and yet the government is not doing that. You know, they are um, putting every single citizen at risk with their behaviour right now, which mm. is continuing to approve coal and gas. And so what we need to try and do is build that movement, get more people. I mean, yes, Move Beyond Coal for the NAB campaign has been absolutely fantastic. We got a lot of people. We um, attended over 60 branches and we had masses of 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 different, you know, people doing sit-ins or just turning up to the branch, just making it really difficult, talking to so many employees so that they understood why we were there. As far as the campaign is concerned, it's going to build on what's happened. So, yes, this billion dollars um, has now gone, but, you know, we have to keep the pressure on and we have to move it up because the banks are one thing. But if the governments don't approve the co- the mines in the first place, then it doesn't matter what happens with the money, does it? It's going to be continuing on. We need more people. We need more people to join the movement. And we're going to start putting pressure uh, further up the chain uh, to to the politicians to get them to actually do their job. It's really a mess. And we need our government to stop pretending that they can behave the way they did 20 years ago. Mm. So it's all about transition. It's about supporting workers. It's about changing things and doing it very, very quickly. You're listening to the Climate Action Show and Marie Leroy from Move Beyond Coal. But from a business point of view, I mean, if you think of after the Second World War, they nationalised a lot of business. They made them people Correct. You know, people owned in, in Britain, for example. Yeah. They nationalised everything, aerospace, telecom, yeah. the docks, the coal mines, the steel and the health system. And and it worked very yep. well for about a decade and then the ideology changed and uh, it started to go back to the private sector. What do you think it needs? What levers? You know, we're, we've got move mm-hmm. beyond coal pushing against the banks. We've got market forces also pr- pr- pressuring, you know, sh- shareholders to pressure their banks. Yep. Um, the financial sector is getting quite a bit of pressure, but I don't think government is really feeling that pressure until there's an election. What what levers can be well, put I think- there? Yeah, we we spoke a little bit earlier and and I concur with you. I think the media has an enormous responsibility that it it is failing. Um, You know, if you look at the mainstream media, for example, there's almost nothing about what's actually going on, you know, in in regards to um, Europe, for example, right now. They they just, they don't report it. Um, You know, we've had a a very bad lot of years with Rupert Murdoch being at the helm and and owning so much media in this country. Uh, Look at the damage he's done himself single-handedly in the US. Look at the damage he did in the UK. So this is not coincidental. And the media is very populist now. You know, I, I I was talking to my husband about this the other day and I said, do you think the internet's actually made people more stupid? Have they forgotten how to do research? Are they not able to do research anymore? Are they just getting spoon-fed and saying, well, that must be the truth? I don't 
I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that people aren't doing the research. People, they're, I mean, man, it's it's multifaceted. Tanya Plibersek starts going on about plastic. Yes, plastic's a huge problem. And yes, we need to do something about it and we should do something about it. But the reality is it's the climate change issue that is the biggest one. And like yeah. I said, if we don't have a planet, then we've got nothing. You know, the world yeah. will survive without people on it. In fact, it would be much happier if we were all gone. You know, the, the world will regenerate and do what it will do. But, you know, we have a responsibility. I worry about my kids. Mm. I worry about my grandkids. And I don't know why the government doesn't worry about it. Well, I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that Community Radio, 3CR, what an awesome role you play in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Marie. I, th I think a lot of countries like Canada and Australia, you know, coal, oil, gas exporting countries, they are kind of over a barrel because they do really believe that their prosperity and their well-being and their actual national stability depends on continuing that business. And it's the transition that nobody can yet imagine allowed. Nobody seems to be able to envision that for governments yet. But I think that has to be coming. And with I feel like the these movements are like swarms of ants, you know, arriving at a bank or arriving at a shareholders meeting or arriving maybe um, in some cases disrupting them, disrupting the port, you know, blockaders trying to disrupt, trying to dramatise, turn around, yep. turn back, you're going the wrong way. But it hasn't hit the main headlines yet because they've got their fingers in their ears. They don't want to hear it. And a lot of people don't want to hear it while our prosperity well, has to depend on it. Well, that's right. But also, you know, we, we live a pretty easy life here in Australia right? We, we have the odd drama with fires and floods and so on, but so does everybody. Um, but the thing is, people don't like having their, their life disrupted at all. And that, this is why when you look at the headlines, when there is something like, um, you know, XR do something and they stop some traffic moving and everybody gets all upset, it's it seems the press won't then say, actually, the reason they're doing that is to show you that a bit of disruption is is really annoying. Wait till exactly. it, you really yes. get disruption. It, right. It's like, you know, when, when you get floods and you can't drive your car anywhere, it's like that's more disrupting than a few people sitting on a road. Can you not shift your mind from where it is today to look at the future and the concepts as to the problems that there are going to be if we don't do something now? Yes. Um, so it, I don't know, I, I, you know, what's really interesting about, you know, groups like XR, because I'm also involved in those groups, and they do spend a lot of time trying to work out, well, what can we do to get people on side? Because mm. they don't like blocking roads. You, they don't mm. enjoy it. It's quite frightening. They they do it because they they feel that they need, we need the media to pay attention and unfortunately, with the majority of the media, especially the Murdoch-owned media, the attention is always negative. Mm. You know, it's like you're all a bunch of hippies. And it's like, actually, mm. I'm not a hippie. You know, mm. I own a business. I've owned a, a successful business that sells the construction industry. So I'm not a hippie. Stop calling me that. <laughs> so there, and, and most of the people that I know aren't hippies. I was involved in um, 
a recent action, uh, well, late last year in the Queensland Parliament, where 14 of us went to, um, we we um, dropped some banners over the over the balcony and we said no coal, no gas. We're currently up on charges for, you know, disrupting the parliament, which um, carries the three-year jail sentence. Um, you know, the people who were involved in that are certainly not hippies. Um, and people say, well, why did you do that? And it's like it was a very low risk. Well, we've written to the politicians. We've tried to talk to them. We've done all of these things. Nobody's listening. We thought, well, let's just go straight there. It was question time. <laughs> You know, and even then they that so even then they try and lock you up. It's it's outrageous. I think we have to finish them, Marie. I think it's the Mahatma Gandhi thing. You know, first they ignore you, then yeah. they laugh at you or deny you, then they fight you, and we're in that fight now. This is what all this is 100%. about. We've won a battle here with the Whitehaven. That's they fight you, and then you win. <laughs> I think that's the phase we're in. And as I say, if you've got any listeners or at their wit's end and they want to know how they can do something um, proactive, then this is possibly a great movement for them to join uh, simply because it's, it's non-threatening. It's a, it's a great community thing. I mean, if you, you know, you meet so many fantastic people, mm. it's, it's fun and it's meaningful and it's something that has to happen because we have to, we have to stop this business as usual. It has to change to the new, a new way of doing things. We don't have an option. Okay, thank you, Marie. We've been talking to spokesperson for Move Beyond Coal, Marie Leroy. So thanks very much, Marie. It's been very sort of energising talking to you. And thank you. <laughs> Good luck with the campaign. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Don't get depressed, get active. That's the headline for three days of forest action starting this Thursday nationwide. And I have Dorothy Barbeck from the Bob Brown Foundation in New South Wales to tell us why we need to rally on Saturday the 12th of August. So welcome, Doro. Koalas feature in all the posters you've got for New South Wales. Please tell listeners about the place you've been. You've seen the videos and you, I think you've been there to the northern New South Wales area near Bellingen. So for Melbourne listeners up near Bellingen, where the Newry State Forest is now being logged and the people there feel very much under attack. Thank you so much. I'm speaking here from um, Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And I want to take you to Gumbangia country, which is up in the northeast of New South Wales. That's the area we're talking about. That's the footprint of the Great Koala National Park um, that the Labour government promised coming to the election to actually create. So this has been on the plan actually for Labour for the election before they came in. So they've been wanting to do this for the last eight years. So now that they are in power, everybody felt like, okay, this amazing network of forests between state forests and um, national parks will come to one large 315,000 hectare park connecting wildlife corridors all across the nation. And 20% of koalas in New South Wales live there, find their habitat there. But incredibly disappointing, the Labour government now is 
industrial scale logging the forests, the very forests that they are saying they want to protect. A lot of these forests carry important koala hubs and they've been registered on the BioLink website. They've been publicly recognized. Our new environment minister, Penny Sharp, she's been informed about these koala hubs. There are absolute definite koala sightings. And when I'm talking about koalas, I of course don't just mean koalas. It's an umbrella species and there's a lot of other animals living there, the greater glider endangered and lots of smaller foraging. You know, it's, it's beautiful up there. It's actually a wet forest and it's so lush and green, large tallow woods, you know, and beautiful koala feed trees from, you know, blue gum over you know, Myrtle, it's amazing. It's an amazing forest and I invite anyone listening to this program to come and see it. It's absolutely stunning. Yet the government is logging it. Gumbungia spokesperson said that they can't access their sacred sites at the moment. He said, unless the appalling logging is stopped, we simply won't have koalas and priceless, irreplaceable Gumbungia cultural heritage anymore. And he called on the Labor state government of New South Wales to stop the destruction. I believe you've told me Victorian loggers are being brought in at the moment. How can we get this message through to Chris Minns, the Premier? This is a political question. Victoria's sort of done it, so New South Wales should do it. Yeah, New South Wales sitting on their hands, literally. Please do write to your Labor MP um, in Parliament, in state Parliament, and ask them for a meeting. Once you ask for a meeting, they actually have to respond. If you just write an email and you say, oh, you know, this concerns me, they just put it aside. So it's always good to ask for a meeting. Um, and then you can discuss this issue about forests being logged and the promises that um, Labour has broken, in particular with regards to the Great Koala National Park. But we are also um, alerting um, nationwide um, people to stand up for forests um, on the 12th of August. Um, this is where we are holding rallies nationwide in all the capital cities, in Sydney, in Brisbane, Canberra, Hobart, um, Melbourne, Perth, as well as some regional centres like Ulladulla, Lismore um, and Coffs Harbour. Um, uh, in Coffs Harbour, actually, if people are listening there, there the rally will be on the 12th of August. But look on our website. Um, we've set up something particularly for these three days of actions. It's called defendthegiants.org and you can locate your rally, the rally near you um, and please join because we want to make this loud. Um, in Sydney, um, it will be held in, um, in Merrickville at the Edison Road Community Organization and we have Dan Illich as our MC, music and um, like a colorful procession from the Tree Veneration Society. So please come along. It'll be a great event with a march to the PM's office. This is a climate action program, and I think a lot of people listening to this will get it on the level of the Great Koala National Park, all of that protecting forests just for themselves. But why will climate activists really want to come out to protect all our native forests in every state? What's the climate value of all that? Yeah, uh, forests carry and store so much carbon. They are like a massive vacuum cleaner for the carbon out of our atmosphere. And they bring it back out of the atmosphere into the root system and into the soil. So it's not just about even logging these trees, they, um, but it's also about not disturbing the forest floor. 
um, because that's also a massive carbon storage area. So machines going in there logging are releasing immediately huge amounts of carbon. And of course, once we start to burn these forests after logging and the majority of these trees are being left on the ground, let's be clear about that. They only take a very small portion out and of that most will be wood chipped, um, except if it's plantation, but it most will be wood chipped to produce toilet paper and copy paper. So the value of this is minimal and it's actually a loss making um, business as well. Like tens of millions of dollars get pushed into this every year and we're destroying, actively destroying our carbon storage and our carbon vacuum cleaner out of the atmosphere and bringing it back. And the next saddest, you know, the saddest thing is also we are looking at an El Nino um, summer. It will be drier, it'll be hotter. And by weakening the strength of these forests with this incredible amount of logging, we are re reducing their resilience to, you know, against these fires. So we're making us a lot more vulnerable again. And that once these forests burn, be it through burning from forestry, which they're doing now, or through the bushfire season, it'll all be released back into the atmosphere and it will accelerate our climate crisis. What perspective does it give you on the voice when you see a state government more or less riding roughshod over Aboriginal current uh, cultural values there? Yeah, it's such a sad um, vision that we've seen in Newry State Forest where Gumbangia Elder um, Miklos has been pushed aside. They flit a sacred fire. That forest there is sacred for man's side and they're logging it. They are logging it for toilet paper production. It's absolutely insane in today when on one hand we say we want to give indigenous people a voice, but then they're being dispossessed in the face of loggers, you know, in public view, actually, there is no shame in this government to proceed with this absolute massacre. And they're not just massacring trees up there, but they're also massacring, again, indigenous pride. He, you can see him in this video um, where he's set, talking about, you've stolen this land before and you continue to take it. And it is clear, it, it, this is what's happening. It's an absolute disgrace and it makes me feel really disappointed. And you wonder what this voice is actually about if this is, can happen in this setting, just up here in the forests, you know? Yeah, it's beyond words. It makes me really sad. Um, and you wonder about the meaning of the voice in the context of this government. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dora. Listeners, please go and look at the Bob Brown Foundation website. Find the, where the rally is near you. 12th of August is the main one, but in other states it might be a bit different. Check it out and please come and stand out there in support of all the things that Dora has told us. We've been talking to Dorothy Barbeck from Bob Brown Foundation. Thank you for taking climate change seriously. I hope it motivates you to action and deeper thinking. Thank you to Professor Chris Wright from Sydney University, Marie Leroy from Move Beyond Coal, and to Dora Barbeck from the Bob Brown Foundation. There's a lot of action. I'll put it all in the show notes on the summary. You go to 3CR Climate Action Show. But just to repeat, if you are, can take it down now, the Bob Brown Foundation and other forest groups will be having a massive rally all around the country in state capitals on Saturday the 12th of August. It's to stop native forest logging. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.
This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.